Hello friends, my name is Ian Graham and I'm the pastor of Ecclesia in Princeton, New Jersey. And I am so excited to introduce to you this teaching series, a series that will look at the story, the big story that the Bible is telling from Genesis to Revelation, a series we're calling From Garden City. The story begins in a garden and it ends in a city and is defined at every twist and turn by the love and the presence of God. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. And so if you've ever tried to read the Bible or you've ever been asked, what what actually is the Bible about? We hope that this teaching series will be a blessing to you. It will be an invitation to see the big story of the Bible and to see your story in light of that beautiful, gracious, life-giving, eternal story. So wherever you are, we pray this is a blessing to you. Grace and peace to you. This is Pastor Ian Graham, and I'm coming to you with part one in our series called From Garden to City, a series where we're looking at the entirety of the Bible. What is the story that the Bible is telling? And this was a sermon that was given at our church uh, this past Sunday, and uh, as it goes, the technology failed us a bit. So I'm here to record this in my office, and one of the things that I find is so different is just the, the different tone that you take. And so I think this is such vital information, but my hope is that this is not just information, that it doesn't feel that way, that it feels like a word that is meeting you from the living God. And so today we want to open up our series and we want to start at the beginning of the story. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start with a bit of a philosophical outline because I think one of the things we have to understand is what are the differences, what are the similarities in the biblical uh, culture, in the culture that the original scriptures were written to, and how do they still speak to us today? How do their uh, experiences intersect with our own? And so that's my hope today, is to begin to kind of draw this very wide angle and then to move us to the text of the scriptures. So let us open the text together in just a moment. But first, let us see some of the philosophical assumptions that are kind of the underpinning of our world. Now, one of the main ways we begin to understand a people is to understand the stories that they tell. In the stories that they tell, in the stories that we tell about ourselves or in our culture, we can see the things that we value. We can see what constitutes hope, what we're afraid of. The philosopher Charles Taylor says, stories give us an understanding of life, people, and what happens to them, which is peculiar. In, in essence, distinct from what other forms, like works of science and philosophy, can give us, and also unsubstitutable. He's saying stories are unsubstitutable. Unsubst- he goes on, it is through story we find or devise ways of living bearably in time. We must have a take on reality and what constitutes progress, or we entertain an identity crisis. How I tell my story defines my identity which is central to being a self. Each of us has an inner biographer linking past, present, and future mental states. This kind of temporal mapping is essential to a healthy identity. So Charles Taylor is saying, we all have an assumed story that we are telling. It's the only way that we can exist in the world. And the book of Genesis 
was likely curated and compiled during a time period known as the Babylonian exile in the life of the people of God. Sometime in the 6th century BC, in 587 BC, the Babylonian armies marched on Jerusalem, just as God had warned the people that they would if they did not repent and change their ways. They destroyed the city, they plundered, they pillaged, they burned the temple to the ground, the temple which was the central symbol of the religious life of the people of Israel, all of it was gone. And even more, they hauled the people off. Many of the people that were leaders in the city of Jerusalem were taken into exile, into captivity in places like Babylon. This is much of the story around the book of Daniel. This setting is the original audience of the much of the Old Testament will be a crucial background as we talk about the story and the life of the people of God. Charles Taylor calls this setting, this world that we inhabit without necessarily constantly being aware of it, a social imaginary. A social imaginary, Taylor writes, is, is how we imagine our social surroundings. And this is not often expressed in theoretical terms. It is carried in images, stories, and legends. It's the way that we move in the world without having to think about it. Like if we're walking down the street in America, there are things that are a part of our social imaginary that are just accepted parts of reality that if we were from a different culture or if we were in a different part of the world would be different. So if this is the original audience, think about their social imaginary. Their homeland has been destroyed. They have been taken from it. They've been removed from the physical place of it. Their central religious symbol, the temple, has been burned to the ground. Their identity as the people of God has been brought into crisis. For the ancients, when a nation fought a nation, not only were two armies warring on earth, but actually their gods in the unseen heavenly realms were at war. And so what would it suggest that the Babylonians had so utterly defeated the people of Israel on earth. Well, it would suggest that the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, Adonai, has been so thoroughly beaten by the Babylonian gods that he's been defeated, he's been rendered impotent, that God is dead, that the only choice is to give up one's identity as a member of the people of Israel, faithful to the supposed one God, the only choice is to assimilate to Babylonian culture, to worship their gods and their rulers. Walter Brueggemann writes of the text that we're going to read in Genesis. He says, this text is likely dated to the 6th century BC and addressed to exiles. It served as a refutation of Babylonian theological claims. The Babylonian gods seemed to control the future. They had, it appeared, defeated the dreams of the God of Israel. Against such claims, it is here asserted in this Genesis text that Yahweh is still God, one who watches over his creation and will bring it to well-being. So everything is in crisis. And don't miss this. For the people of God, the original recipients of this Genesis text, their identity, their homeland, their very future itself are all brought into existential crisis. And what did the people do in the face of this crisis? 
what did the people do in the face of the totalitarian regime that was the Babylonian Empire that was trying to completely assume their social imaginary? They, they told stories. They sang songs. They dreamed dreams that would invite them to maintain faithfulness to their identity as the people of the one true God. Now, I hope that this will be abundantly answered throughout our time in this series. I am so excited about this series because I think that if we could just see the forest, the trees would make a lot more sense. But I think that we have to constantly come back to how do we understand this biblical story in light of the story that we are living? How does the biblical social imaginary form our social imaginary? You see, our pressures to conform are much more subtle. Our idols are much more camouflaged. But think about it. When you think about our culture, the doctrine that defines our world, what is our social imaginary? Well, it starts with something like this. Meta-narratives, and when I say meta-narrative, I mean just a story that explains our world, that, can, that is big enough to fit kind of all of the compartments of our lives into a larger umbrella of story. And in our world, Meta-narratives and all explaining story are inherently suspect. Mikhail Foucault says the strategic adversary is fascism. The fascism in us all, in our heads and in our everyday behavior. The fascism that causes us to love power, to desire the very thing that dominates and exploits us. Foucault is saying that any claim for an explanatory story is just a fascism. And even if it's one that we readily accept, it's a fascism that represses us. And in essence, it is something that enslaves us and we have to throw off the shackles of any all-explaining story. Meta-narratives, by nature, are suspect. Since all meta-narratives are suspect then, living authentically, as Charles Taylor has pointed out, is the only truth is the only way that we can form a social imaginary that makes sense of the world. Or, we say it in the popular way, because all meta-narratives are suspect, then you have to live your truth. Live your truth. This is the encouragement. This is the air that we imbibe, that we breathe in our culture. But the problem is is that living your truth is exhausting. And there's some philosophical things going on here. First, in some way, we are buying into the conclusions of people like Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche said that there is no truth, therefore all truth claims are a claim to power. His conclusion then, as he sort of traced these lines, was to say that nothing matters. Nihilism, nothing. But for us, we've accepted We've traced the lines that Nietzsche has traced, that there is no truth, that we have to each live our own truth, without necessarily buying into his conclusion that nothing matters. We're trying to fill a meaning container with air. We're trying to fill something that only God can fill. We're trying to live our truth, to invent truth for ourselves, and it is exhausting. Now, I think sometimes when we poke holes or when we try to look at culture and the environment, it can sound inherently cynical or even oppositional. You know, Christians kind of throughout the ages have been uh, oppositional in different ways to the world. And I do think that we are called, as Jesus says, that we cannot love the world and love him 
First John says that those who love the world do not love God. So it's for us, it's inherent that we, that we be discerning about these things. But I do think that sometimes when we look at culture and we say this is what it is, then it sounds inherently cynical. And what I'm saying is that it's not inherently cynical that we see the world for what it is. And I actually think that there are some ways that this, this sort of poking holes in the truth as this kind of objective, clean packaged thing has been really helpful. Think about in our culture, there's been a movement uh, mostly founded upon critical theories that have begun to call into question the histories that we are often taught, at least in my generation, I'm, I'm 36 years old, the histories that I was taught you know, the sort of American exceptionalism. And in large part, these histories either ignore or just kind of quickly gloss over the fact that there were indigenous people that were owning and stewarding the land in America long before the settlers arrived. And those indigenous people were not just moved nicely to some other place. No, their land was stolen. They were brutalized, murdered. They were ravaged with disease. And then once the land was taken by the settlers, often in the name of Jesus, once their land was taken, then these same settlers, these same societies, these imperial cultures went to places like Africa and removed and stole people from their homeland, separating mother and father, and brought them over to this recently acquired land and made them to work the land as slaves. This is an example of the way that these questioning of the received history, somebody asking, are we sure that's what happened? Can be a gift and can be a way of telling the truth. And I would argue that as much as we're talking about sort of postmodernism, this sense that there are competing truth claims, the Bible is the first, the first postmodern document because it doesn't only tell history from the standpoint of the winners. The people of God, of Israel, the Christians that follow, that receive this good news as Jesus, as Messiah, are not the most powerful in their societies. They're not the winners who have won these great battles and can write on the other side of their victories. Rather, they are often those who through all circumstance maintain their faithfulness and write from their vantage point about what God is doing in the world. And so I I would say that we have to sort of see what the culture that we live in looks like. As David Foster Wallace says to the graduating class at Kenyon College, he says, this is water. This is like two fish talking about the environment that they live in. And in many ways, we just want to point that out. But living our truth, to come back to this kind of societal maxim, is exhausting. Because we have all the burden of inventing our truth. D.H. Lawrence, no, par- no paragon of mer- meta-narrative, said, Our ready-made individuality, our identity is no more than an accidental cohesion in the flux of time. And I hope you can see what's going on here. We're talking out of both sides of our mouth. We're saying it with one side that there is no truth and that the other side that we can invent truth. And that is a just example of cognitive dissonance that we cannot maintain. It results, as Charles Taylor warned us, in identity crisis. It's a story that doesn't make sense. But Christians have claimed that the fullness of human expression is not found in self-actualization, not found in us inventing our truth, 
but is actually found in the surrender of self. Against the totalitarian regime that says that all ways are equally beautiful, that all truths are equally good, Christians reading this story that we are going to unpack today have found a counter-narrative to the claims of imperial domination that our identities don't have to be built from the ground up, but rather are pronounced over us, received in the grace and blessing of God. And I think it's so important that we start with these philosophical assumptions. Because just as the people of God reading this text that we're going to open today were in exile, we, in many ways, are a people in exile. And I think that it helps us illuminate the world of the scriptures in such a way that the scriptures meet us as the living word of God and illuminate our world. Leslie Newbigin writes, The way we understand human life depends on what conception we have of the human story. What is the real story of which my life story is a part? And throughout history, philosophies and histories have been trying to answer, essentially, we could break it down into these questions. These aren't the only ones, but these are definitely major questions that are being asked. First of all, who is God? Who am I? What is the good life? And are we going to be okay? Leslie Newbigin writes again, he says, I do not believe that we can speak effectively of the gospel as a word addressed to our culture unless we recover a sense of the scriptures as a canonical whole, as the story which provides the true context for our understanding of the meaning of our lives, both personal and public. And that is our hope as we begin this series, that recovering what Newbegin calls the canonical whole by seeing the forest, that we can see our lives, as Psalm 1 says, like a tree planted by streams of water, watered by the goodness of God, resisting the drift of our culture towards ways of rebellion, towards ways of idolatry, towards ways that are just frankly less than the beauty of what God has for us. So it's in that spirit that we turn to Genesis chapter 1. The author of Genesis writes, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The very first words in the scriptures bear witness to God, Elohim, the Creator. The text says the earth was formless and empty, and that the Spirit of God was hovering over the deep. For the ancients, those reading this text, the deep was a place of chaos, primordial disorder. The Spirit of God is hovering over these waters, a powerful image. Declaring God's sovereignty, the scriptures open with this bold announcement, in the beginning of everything is God, and God is over all that would threaten us, all the places of chaos, of evil, of uncertainty. And again, if you keep the people that were first hearing these words in mind, those in captivity in Babylon, this is a stunning announcement. This story actually reflects other origin stories from other cultures that were present at the time of the people of Israel, people like the Egyptians and the Babylonians. They each had their own versions of a creation story or a flood story, and it usually involved the most powerful supreme god subduing other gods. But notice in this story, there's no description of conflict. God exists. He 
is and he is over the waters of chaos from the very beginning. He brings order to the tohu wabohu, the formless void. This God is not under, not under threat. He doesn't have to strive for his place in the cosmos. There is no rival to his authority and power. Now, if I asked you to give me some historical information, some biographical information about Martin Luther King Jr., you probably would not find it in a math textbook. A math textbook is more likely to tell you about things like math. <laughs> Much mischief has been made by people using the Bible in ways that it was never intended to be used. And it breaks my heart to hear the stories of people who have genuinely lost their faith because they couldn't reconcile what they learned about in their earth science class and what some, I think, and I hope, well-meaning but misguided Bible teacher told them that they had to assent to in order to be faithful to God. So to anybody listening to my voice right now, let me tell you very plainly, Genesis 1 is not a scientific accounting of the material origins of the universe. It was never meant to serve that purpose. And using it in that way is like trying to use a math textbook to do a report on history. It just doesn't work. The first question when we approach any text, especially those in the Bible, that we have to ask is, what is this thing? What questions is it trying to answer? Or asked another way, what genre is it? Like if you go about correcting all your friends' grammar when they send you text messages, you're probably not going to receive many texts because it's not a formal document. People are not interested in communicating grammatically correct. They're interested in communicating simply. And here in Genesis 1, we have to begin by asking the question, what are we dealing with? And that will help us avoid asking questions of this text that it is not trying to answer. So, what is Genesis 1? Well, if I'm speaking to you normally and telling you information about this text, then suddenly I started saying, in a serener bright, in a more golden light, I see each little doubt and fear, each little discord here removed. Then I will not repine, knowing that bird of mine, though flown, shall in a distant tree bright melody for me return. You would recognize that a shift had taken place. That we had moved from prose to poetry. Because poetry has a different cadence, a different shape to the words. It invites us to slow down and to pay attention. Now, this is not just an excuse to read good poetry over you, though I love reading Emily Dickinson to groups of people. This is an invitation to pay attention to what God is doing. My friend Drew Jackson says that poetry is the language of contemplation. Notice verses 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then again, look again. And then God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault and from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And so this goes on repeating until the very important variations of the sixth day. But what we can see is that Genesis 1 
has all the marks of a poem or a song. There is a refrain pattern, a chorus. It, the, the pattern goes something like this, and God said, and so there was, God called, God saw that it was good evening and morning. And this repeats day after day. Remember, this text was likely originally addressed to exiles. So what do we do in the face of exile? What do we do in the face of imperial domination? The Bible says that we tell the story again of what God has done, that we sing songs. And here, from the very beginning of the library of scriptures, we have one of the most stirring testimony to God's power and creation. In the very beginning, God speaks. He brings the world to life. Words create worlds. And this God, this God of Israel, this God who created the world, didn't create the world through struggle or striving, but created the world out of an abundance of his love, speaking creation into existence. Words create worlds. C.S. Lewis captures this so beautifully in his depiction of Aslan singing the world into being. God is a joyful narrator, a conductor of the symphony of creation, and God not only speaks in command, let there be, but he pronounces his blessing and he saw, he looks upon it and sees that it is good to speak for God is both an expression of his magisterial sovereignty. God said, let there be light, and there was light. But when we speak, it's not only a command. And when God speaks, it's not only declaring his absolute sovereignty, but it is also an invitation to relationship. Not just sovereignty, but intimacy. To speak is to, to expect that there might be a listening ear to hear. Sociologists have discovered that people cannot distance being listened to and being loved. And God's call in creation, words creating worlds, is also a call to relationship. God calling the world to life is calling a world to receive the witness of his love. Genesis 1 verse 11 says, God said, let the land produce every creature that God creates from the very beginning is endowed with the ability to make more of its kind. Trees can make more trees, butterflies, more butterflies. From the beginning, creation is not static. It is dynamic. It is all going somewhere. You see, when we pay attention to the story that is actually being told, not the story that we think we should be hearing, it changes things. It's the role of a good storyteller to connect the beginning and the end. It's the role of a good storyteller for those things that mark the beginning to be reconciled and resolved and brought to their fullest resolution in the end. And when we think about the end, how many of us have been given some sense of this image of heaven. Heaven as this static place, this place of endless leisure, no pain, you're floating on clouds, you're eating cookies, it all sounds kind of harmless, it all sounds kind of precious moments, and it, for many of us, it all sounds terribly boring. 
The show about heaven that was recently on NBC, The Good Place, essentially argued that this sort of existence is no kind of existence at all. That eventually all your desires will be consumed. That there'll be, uh, you'll, there's a limit on things that you can actually enjoy. That there's a limit to pleasure, a limit to fulfilling yourself, a limit to knowledge. And that the only solution at these, the edge of these limits is to annihilate yourself, to throw yourself into this existential void, to basically decreate yourself. But this is not the story the Bible is telling. Paul says that love never fails. There is no end to love. Love cannot be consumed because love is ever generative. And in the beginning... The world that God creates out of an abundance of his love is generative, it is dynamic, it is moving, it is going somewhere. So perhaps, as the story begins in a garden and will end in a city, perhaps we are not moving towards some static, existential, just void of existence, but perhaps we're moving towards a renewed sense of story, towards a fullness, towards the fullness of beauty and life, absent struggle, yes and amen, as we'll see in Revelation here in just a few moments. But perhaps the story was always going somewhere, in the beginning and in the end. Genesis 1 verse 26 through 27 says, Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image. According to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now on the sixth day, there's a break in the pattern that it defined the previous days. And the culmination of the symphony of creation as humankind, male and female, are brought onto the scene. Why does our culture at least profess to believe that every life that is, you know, at least currently in existence has some sense of inherent worth? Well, this is not a belief that evolved society just happened upon. This is not a belief that that people tracing the philosophical assumptions of people like Darwin and Freud and Nietzsche or the scripts of our cultural moment just happen to come upon. No, this is a product of the impact that Christians throughout history have had. A value that has been lived out by the Jewish people and Christians that has simply been adopted and co-opted by our culture. Christians, from the very beginning, were known because they didn't expose children that were unwanted. In fact, no children were unwanted. In in many cases, they would go and they would gather babies that had been put out in the first century. Babies that had been put out, forgotten, left, abandoned to die. And they would take them and raise them as their own. And God doesn't simply say to us, okay, I've made you, listen and obey me. No, he invites those made in his image to partner with him, to be co-creators alongside him, to be those made in his image. God gives responsibility. Genesis 1 verse 28 says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The Hebrew word for rule is radah. The word for subdue is kabosh. These words are not about exploitation, but careful cultivation. Intimate stewardship. God invites us as his, those made in his image 
into his work of managing, of ordering creation. You notice God's work in creation is often putting limits on things. He puts limit on light. He puts limit on darkness. He puts limit on the sea. Our role is to join him in ordering and limiting. This is why the crisis that our climate is in is not some extra concern for Christians, but is inherent that we meet this moment with our best prayers, with our best action, with our best witness, because we are those made in God's image, co-creators of God. And every person that we see, every person we see on the street, every person that helps us, you know, serves us coffee or attends the lawns that we, uh, the buildings that we, we work in or live in, every single person from the uh, people outside working during the day to the people in the, the boardroom, every single person, regardless of their status in our culture, is made in the image of God. And God has given each one of us the dignity of responsibility and stewardship. God places us in the midst of this good world that he has made uh, in order to make something of it, to rule and subdue it, not in exploitation, but in cultivation. And we're going to talk so much about this next week. Genesis 1.29 says, God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the ground, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. As the six days of creation come to their stirring climax, God steps back from his creation like an artist admiring his work and declares his blessing. Indeed, it was very good. Tov ma'od, good exceedingly. It has beauty and function and purpose. And God, like we've all had this moment where we've made something and, you know, no matter how shoddy, no matter how, uh, you know, really put together it is, it is our work. It is the work of our hands, of our imagination. And God steps back like an artist and he says that it is very good. He pronounces his very good over it, his blessing. And this is a picture of God's cosmic peace, what the ancients called shalom. The world bathed in the radiance of the blessing and presence of God. And as this text concludes, we see God taking up rest, hallowing the Sabbath day. And scholars have noted that this text is not just a a creation account, but is actually the account of how God constructs his temple. That for the ancients, the end point of the construction of a temple was the God, the deity that it was dedicated to, taking up residence in that temple. Now think about this. The Jewish people, their temple has been destroyed. Many of them have been carted off to a foreign land. Not only is the building in rubble, but they're actually not even anywhere close to where the building existed formerly. What a testimony this would be. That, that God's temple is not something made by human hands, but is the very cosmos itself. 
that to be far away from home or that to be outside of the temple was not to be far away from this God because this God's presence, his glory, his blessing, his radiance fills the earth like waters cover the sea. This is a counter-testimony, a counter-narrative to the forces of chaos and darkness. To a person in exile, the temple has been burned to the ground, but this God is not confined to a temple. You have been told that you are slaves, captives, good for nothing, but for the machinery of empire. No, you are made in the image of God. The gods of Babylon need little statues to declare what they look like, but the God of the universe, the God of creation, does not need little statues because every single daughter and son manifests as an icon of his image in the world. This is a counter-narrative. And think about what this might mean for us in our modern exile. We've all been told that there is no meta-narrative. That meta-narratives are all violent and oppressive, and yet I would challenge you, find the violence and the oppression in this story. No, rather you have the God of the universe commanding and inviting, speaking so that there would be response and relationship. God makes the world with his word. Now there is a hierarchy woven into the fabric of this creation story. But it's a hierarchy that not brings repression or, or su subjugation, but rather fullness and freedom. And that hierarchy is simple. The creator who speaks the world into existence. Then next you have those made in the creator's image, women and men. And it's such a counter narrative in this culture too, that women are not defined as property, but are defined as the image of God. And then the third tier is creation. We are called as co-creators, as partners with God to manage, to subdue, to have dominion over. And if God is the creator and is making creation his temple and we are made in his image, then perhaps what the beautiful theological poetry of Genesis 1 is evoking is that God is making his home with us. And this home is where God is present and where blessing and shalom reign. And that this home is not confined to a certain geography, a time, and a place, but rather is anywhere that God has spoken the world into existence. The fracturing of this shalom that we see so beautifully manifested here in Genesis 1 will result, in, in as we'll see, in a dislocation, a removal from Eden, a loss of home. We will be refugees living east of Eden, but that's not where the story starts. It starts with blessing. It starts with home. And as I said, it's the role of any good storyteller to bring the beginning to resolution, to illumination in the end. And if I had to define what the Bible, what the story the Bible is telling in just one sentence, God's stopping at nothing to make his home with us. And this is borne out throughout the rest of the scriptures. John picks up this theme, this creation symphony theme, as he opens his gospel, as he talks about what Jesus is doing in the world. And he says, in the beginning was the word, sound familiar? And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life. 
and the life was the light of all the people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. John picks up on this creation theme in the life of Jesus, that that word which brought the world to life is now brought into the very confines of the world in the person and fullness of Jesus. And then John says in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and full of truth. John bears witness to the work that Jesus will do as he moves into the neighborhood, as the word becomes flesh. He says the darkness will try to outshine the light. The darkness will try to break down the light, but the darkness cannot, it will not, and it shall not overcome. God's let there be light. Jesus is God's ultimate subduing of the powers that threaten us, the ultimate subduing of the powers of our own sin, our own rebellion against God that we'll see so plainly manifest in Genesis 3, and of the slavery of sin and death that result in our using our stewardship and our responsibility in ways that are not cultivating shalom. In Jesus, the word that brought the world to life makes his home with us. We reject him. We shout for Barabbas. We shout crucify him. Yet his light is not overcome by our darkness. And on that Easter Sunday morning, after he has given his life on behalf of the world, he declares that I make all things new. Revelation 21 verses 3 through 5 Bring this theme of God making a world where he can be God in our midst, God with us to its fullest and most beautiful. And for me, my most aching, just Lord, do it again. Revelation 21 verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, notice this, See the home of God. Did you catch that? See the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. The Bible begins with God speaking. It begins with the creation story, but it begins too with God saying that, see, I make my home where you are. Even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of despair, there is blessing. There is a call, a purpose, a mission. And the Bible ends with this same call, this same theme brought to its fullest resolution. That from the garden of God's presence to a city where God himself is the very temple, where there is no need for the sun because God himself is the light, that those made in his image have forevermore the presence of God, God making his home with them, the purposes of God, the cultivation of God's beautiful, good, abundant world. It all starts and ends with blessing. It all starts and ends with God and His creative, gracious abundance. If we took sin out of the Bible, we'd be left with Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And the theme of those chapters and the theme as Jesus comes to us and says, I bring the kingdom of heaven near as the word becomes flesh and make His dwelling among us is God with us.
and where God is, the forces of darkness and chaos cannot threaten us. The forces of all that we have done, our own shame and guilt, are no more. God will wipe every tear from our eye. And it's not just about restoration, but it's about resurrection. All things being made new. And where God is, there's an invitation to be his partners in creation. That out of the abundance of love, out of the abundance of God's blessing to create, to imagine, to dream. The story through and through is wound by love. It begins in love. It ends in love. And is held together by the love of Jesus on the cross as he extends his arms in embrace to the entire world. Does this sound like a meta-narrative that we can put our lives underneath? Does it sound like a meta-narrative that's big enough to hold the world? Jesus' arms are extended to us today. Let us receive the embrace of this story. Grace and peace to you.